Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic descriptions as well as dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the colder months, the grounds of Harvard University became a palette of browns, grays, and white. The cement footpaths carve a dark ribbon through the snow-covered lawns, weaving among the leafless trees, heavy with the morning's frost. On January 6, 1969, this idyllic winter landscape served as a backdrop for thousands of anxious students preparing for their exams. The campus buzzed with life as friends called out to each other from across the lawns, their boots cutting crude pathways through the freshly fallen snow. The energy of the day continued into the evening as students went out for drinks to catch up with their friends and enjoy one final moment of relaxation before the work resumed in the morning. The boisterous chatter spilled out into the street, revitalizing Cambridge with the sound of many voices. Eventually, the students returned home, red-faced from the cold and ready to sleep off an evening of heavy drinking. Any dread about the swift approach of exams was dulled by the welcome distraction of alcohol and the promise of a night's rest. The city went quiet. Harvard University's campus sat silently, waiting for the next day to begin. But not everyone was resting. One person still moved through the dark. In the morning, the horror he'd wrought would be discovered. But by then, he'd already be gone. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our first episode on the murder of Jane Britton. This week, we'll cover the first days of the investigation and the discovery of an unlikely clue. Next week, we'll discuss the decades-long search for Jane's killer. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. On January 7th, 1969, the frigid cold of the previous night was replaced with slightly warmer temperatures, melting the snow into a soup of gray slush. The sound of snow boots filled the Harvard campus as students hurried to class. This was the second day of reading period, a time when Harvard students prepared for their upcoming exams. But for a small group of graduate students, January 7th marked the end of preparation. Shortly after 9 a.m., they shuffled into the top floor of Peabody Museum, ready to take the first out of three general anthropology exams that would decide their fates as Ph.D. candidates. As described in Becky Cooper's book about the case, We Keep the Dead Close, a poor grade would result in an end to their Ph.D. studies, leaving them with a terminal master's degree. They would essentially be kicked out of the program. The exam's importance was all-consuming. Nothing else mattered. Hardly anyone noticed that one of the students was missing. 23-year-old Jane Britton was nowhere to be seen. Jane was a lively archaeology student with straight, dark hair that framed her face. She was flighty, known by her classmates to turn up in the student lounge unannounced after brief periods of absence. But she was no slacker. Jane had joined the Harvard Ph.D. program straight out of Radcliffe, Harvard's sister school. While she was certainly a spontaneous person, there was no way she would miss the general exams. One of the only people who noticed her absence was her boyfriend, who, for sake of anonymity, we will call Craig Hogarth, age 27, who was also taking the exam that day. Craig was the picture of a 1960s grad student, tall with horn-rimmed glasses and light-colored hair. The moment he realized Jane was absent, he became worried. The hours ticked by, and shortly after noon, the exam ended. Still, there was no sign of Jane. After the exam, Craig approached a classmate to see if they might be able to help. Hey. Did you notice that Jane wasn't at the exam today? Uh, she wasn't there? <laughs> I hardly noticed. Didn't you see her last night? I mean, yeah, we went out for dinner and then we had drinks. <laughs> well, maybe she drank too much and missed her alarm. Yeah, maybe you're right. I'll just go over to her place to check on her. While his classmates went to the dining hall to celebrate the end of their exam... Craig Hogarth walked across campus to Jane's apartment. She lived in a large red brick building tucked on a side street near Harvard Square. It wasn't the most secure building, but it was cheap. Years of use by uncareful students had given the building an air of shabbiness. Peeling wallpaper, deadbolt locks that were difficult to operate. But Jane Britton hadn't minded these minor issues. Craig entered the building and walked up to the fourth floor. The hazy light of the gray January afternoon spilling into the hallway. Jane's room was at the end of the hall, 
its entrance easily spotted as she had painted the door gold. Despite knowing that her apartment would already be unlocked, Craig knocked. Suddenly, the door across from Jane's opened. In her book, We Keep the Dead Close, journalist Becky Cooper details many aspects of Jane's neighbors. Two anthropology students who, for the sake of anonymity, will call Vaughn and Gail Meacham. They knew Jane well and had incorrectly thought that Craig's knocking was the sound of Jane returning from her exam. Oh, hi, Craig. I wasn't expecting to see you. How was the exam? It was fine. Say, did you see Jane leave the apartment this morning? No. uh, Gail and I shared a drink with her last night after she came home. But that's all we saw of her. We've been hoping to hear from her today. I know you guys have generals. She wasn't at the exam today. What? That doesn't make any sense. Oh God, I hope she didn't sleep through it. You should go and check on her. This time, Craig didn't bother knocking. With a quick shove, he opened the door. Walking into the apartment, Craig saw that the kitchen window was wide open and the wet January air seeped into the space. Jane's pet cat blinked lazily at Craig as he surveyed the apartment. According to author Becky Cooper, Jane was not one to keep her space tidy and the apartment looked as it always did. Books and manuscripts were draped haphazardly over each other on the floor, mingled with filled ashtrays. A handful of wine glasses placed on the windowsill cast sharp fragments of light across the walls. Craig stepped further into the apartment, and then he saw her. Jane was on the bed, one of her legs dangling off the side of the mattress. Her nightgown was pulled up to her waist, exposing the entire lower half of her body. Craig quickly looked away. He was a man with traditional values. For Craig, Jane's exposed body was indecent and not something a man should see in a situation like this. Without trying to wake his girlfriend, Craig stepped back into the hallway and approached Vaughn Meacham, who was still standing in the doorway. Is Galen? Jane is in her bed and she's... Well, I think it would be better if a woman woke her up instead of me. She's... exposed. Of course. Hey, Gail? Craig Hogarth is out here. I guess Jane fell asleep in a bit of a compromising position and he said it would be more appropriate if you woke her up? Gail Meacham agreed and walked across the hallway into Jane Britton's apartment. She had hardly disappeared inside when she returned, her face white. I need to sit down. Vaughn. Vaughn, you go in there. I can't. What is it? Was she passed out? Oh, Craig, it's... Vaughn, you go inside. Vaughn Meacham slowly entered the apartment. He too saw that Jane's lower half was exposed, but he also noticed something strange. From her waist up... Jane was covered with a random pile of items from her apartment, multiple sheepskin rugs and her own fur coat. The pile obscured Jane's head, but Vaughn could see that she was face down. Carefully, he began removing the items that were covering her. As he removed the last coat, Vaughn took a sharp, ragged breath. There was blood everywhere. On the pillow, the sheets clotted and flaking at the back of Jane's neck. There was no point trying to wake her. 
she was dead. Coming up, the police begin their investigation. Stay with us. Hi, listeners. They say there's someone for everyone. A soul to share your secrets with. A companion to grow old with. A conspirator to commit crimes with. Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, discover the radical side of romance with a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the ParCast network. Track the nefarious exploits of Bonnie and Clyde. Meet married mafiosos Jackie and Thelma Wright. And uncover the secret lives of alleged spies Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from ParCast, Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now... Back to our story. January 7th, 1969 had begun as normally as any other day at the Cambridge Police Station. Officers were largely busy filing reports from the previous night. The Homicide Division wasn't especially active. Detective Lieutenant Leo Davenport, the acting chief of the division, was busying himself at his desk when the phone rang. Cambridge, Homicide Division. Uh, afternoon. I'm Von Meacham. I live over at the Craigie Apartment Building. Um, there's been... An... A girl has been killed. Our neighbor, Jane Britton. She's... She's dead. Okay, hang in there. We'll get some officers out to you. Where did you say you lived? Uh, the Craigie. Um, 6 University Road. Oh, I see. Thank you. We're on our way. Leo Davenport knew about the apartment building at 6 University Road. Only six years earlier, he had been assigned to investigate the murder of Beverly Sammons, who had been stabbed to death in her apartment. And two years earlier, in 1961, another resident, Jean Kessler, had survived being attacked by a stranger wielding a hammer. The building had a reputation for being unsafe with unreliable locks and easy access to the apartments from the fire escape. Clearly, nothing had changed. Detective Davenport sent three men to Jane Britton's apartment. Detectives William Durrett, Michael Giacoppo, and a detective who we'll call Frank Citronella for the sake of anonymity. They walked quickly up the four flights of stairs and weaved their way through the hallway where neighbors had begun peeking out at the scene. 
entering Jane's apartment, the three officers also noted the open kitchen window in the unit. Quickly, they realized something even stranger. Nothing in the apartment seemed to have been stolen. Many valuable items were strewn about the ground in plain sight. Money, jewelry, expensive-looking artifacts. The detectives stepped gingerly around piles of books, looking for any sign that an intruder had entered Jane's apartment with the intention to burglarize it. But nothing seemed to be missing. In fact, the three detectives couldn't find any indication that the intruder had forced an entry into Jane's unit. The only clear proof that something terrible had happened was the presence of Jane herself lying ghoulishly still on her bed. The three men sensed that Jane's neighbors might be more useful to the case. While Detective Giacoppo stayed in the apartment to dust for fingerprints, Detectives Durrett and Citronella began speaking to other tenants to find out if anyone had heard or seen anything strange the night before. Mind answering a few questions for us, Mr... Messer. Andrew Messer. And sure, this is just so crazy. My wife Carol and I had seen Jane at a party only a few days ago. She always seemed so nice. Yes, but did you notice anything bizarre last night? Strange noises or something like that? No, I'm sorry to say. Carol and I were up really late last night, too. Until, like, two in the morning. We didn't hear anything. That's actually sort of a feature of this place. How do you mean? Well, the building does a really good job of muffling sounds. I even heard that the floors were designed to be soundproof. I never hear a thing from the neighbors. As the two men questioned more and more of Jane's neighbors, they kept receiving the same message. No one had heard or seen anything. Within a few hours, the detectives had finished their initial search. It was clear that Jane had been bludgeoned to death, but none of the men had found a murder weapon. According to Becky Cooper, by that time, the news of a murdered co-ed had reached the press, who were huddled around the entrance to the building. Dozens of reporters and photographers craned their necks to catch a glimpse of Jane's body as it wheeled past on a stretcher, covered crudely by a thin white sheet. As the detectives left the scene, they were mobbed with questions. Detectives, does this murder have anything to do with the other slayings at this building? Are they connected? Could this be a crime of passion? Was there a jealous ex-boyfriend? We have no comment at this time, gentlemen. Now please let us pass. Back at the Cambridge police station, what had begun as a normal, uneventful day had quickly turned into a frenzy of activity. Detective Lieutenant Leo Davenport was wasting no time. The first people to be interviewed were Jane's parents, Ruth and Jay Boyd Britton. Mr. Britton was a relatively well-known person in Cambridge. He was the administrative vice president of Radcliffe College, the sister school of Harvard. But while Jay Boyd Britton was a public figure, his wife Ruth was not, and the news of her daughter's murder was almost too much for her to take. Mrs. Britton, I'm sorry to ask you these questions, but the more I know, the quicker we can find the man who hurt your daughter. I just spoke to her on the phone Monday night. I can't believe this. She was a good girl. I don't understand how this could happen. I can't imagine how painful this must be for you. Why don't you tell me about the last time you saw Jane over winter break? Was she behaving strangely at all? No, 
not at all. She was totally normal. She was worried about her exams, but that's all. I tell you, she was a normal girl. <laughs> My Jane! The Britons were extremely eager to help Leo Davenport, but nothing in their statements shed any light on the mystery surrounding Jane's horrific murder. Soon, the couple were sent on their way. The press had also swarmed the police station, and once Mr. and Mrs. Britton emerged, they were immediately surrounded by reporters. But the two parents didn't engage. Their heads bowed as they shuffled silently through the crowd to their car. Leo Davenport knew that Jane's boyfriend, Craig Hogarth, would be another person worth interviewing. And just like Mr. and Mrs. Britton, Craig arrived at the police station, anxious to help the investigation in any way he could. So, Craig, you're Jane's boyfriend, yes? You could say that, yeah. I saw in your transcripts that you were gone for most of the fall semester. Yeah, when I got back from a dig in Iran, I got really sick, but... Yeah, I guess I wasn't around too much. I didn't see Jane very often. We mostly kept in touch through letters and phone calls. So, you wouldn't know if she had other boyfriends? No, I guess not. But she never seemed to be that type of girl, you know? Craig Hogarth stayed in the interrogation room for hours, answering any question that Detective Davenport asked of him. But just like Jane's parents, Craig didn't provide the police with any insight into the bizarre nature of the girl's death. After an entire day of interrogation, Leo Davenport decided it was time to update the public on the case. The press still lingered outside the station, and the detective knew that he needed their cooperation in what was already becoming a difficult investigation. Davenport had no leads, but the detective could at the very least clear up some of the rumors that were already swirling around the case. Around midnight, he gathered the press in a conference room to make his position known. Evening, gentlemen. Thank you for your patience. We've had a pretty hectic day. I'm happy to take your questions now. Is this case tied to the previous attacks that have happened at the Craigie apartment building? No, not at all. We have found nothing to suggest that this murder was linked in any way to previous cases associated with that building. How did she die? We're waiting on a secondary autopsy report, but our initial findings indicate that she was murdered with a blunt object with a pointed end. The assailant struck her from all sides of the head, sometimes with extreme force, cracking her skull. The coroner also noted two shallow gashes on the victim's forehead, suggesting that she was facing her attacker when she was initially attacked. I saw that Jane's boyfriend, Craig Hogarth, just left the police station. Are you considering him a suspect? Craig Hogarth came to the station of his own volition, and we are not considering him as a suspect at this time. Do you have anyone listed as a suspect? Currently, we have no one suspected of this crime, but the autopsy report coupled with our findings at the scene do suggest something. There was no forced entry, no sign of struggle, and the victim was facing her attacker. So we're pretty sure of one thing. Jane Britton knew the person who killed her. While Leo Davenport gave his statement, the scene at Six University Road was grim. From the outside, the building remained unchanged. After a day of activity, the street was silent. But inside, 
The remaining tenants of 6 University Road were incapable of rest. Jane Britton's body had been taken away, but her apartment remained a ghostly reminder of the events of the day. No one felt safe going to sleep that night. Many of the tenants were other single women, and that night they chose to gather together, hoping that the strength of numbers would spare them a similar fate. Jane's neighbors, Vaughn and Gail Meacham, anxiously paced the length of their apartment, feeling the constant lingering presence of death across the hall. It was clear that the police had no leads. No one knew who murdered Jane Britton. The killer was still out there, and he could kill again. Coming up, the police reveal a detail about the investigation that sends the press into a frenzy. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Now, back to the story. Jane Britton had been dead for only a day, but by January 8, 1969, the story of her death was on the front page of every newspaper in Boston. Even the New York Post couldn't resist publishing a story about the murdered student. Reporters choked the narrow hallways of the Cambridge police station and even more wandered through the Harvard campus, searching for anyone who could give a comment about Jane's death. Detective Lieutenant Leo Davenport felt obliged to continue informing the press on the status of the investigation, though his comments remained vague. At his next briefing, he explained that while the police hadn't found a suspect, they were looking at two potential leads. We're monitoring one of Jane Britton's ex-boyfriends, who recently dropped out of the anthropology department and has been spotted lurking around Cambridge in the last few weeks. There is another man, as well, whose romantic advances were allegedly rejected by the victim. And do these men have names? I will not be disclosing that information at this time. What about a murder weapon? We're still searching, though our detectives have noted that one of Miss Britton's archaeology tools was missing from her apartment. It's a stone, about six inches in length, with a sharp pointed end. Our men are currently searching for it. Detective! Detective! Can you confirm that? Detective! Was there anything else stolen from- Detective! That's all for now, gentlemen. I'll appreciate your patience with us. Thank you. Detective Davenport hadn't told the press much, 
But it didn't take long for rumors to spread, especially in the anthropology department. People were particularly interested in the mysterious nature of the second man that Davenport had mentioned, the one who Jane rejected shortly before her death. Quickly, students began murmuring about the possibility that this mystery man could be a professor within the department. And one name stood out, a professor who we'll call Scott Mulholland. Most of the instructors in the anthropology department were members of the old guard of anthropologists. Stuffy, older men who treated their profession as a gentleman's practice and one with strict rules. Female students were hardly tolerated, and smoking on the job was considered rude and unbecoming. As the cultural gap widened between the professors and the young students, the department slowly began considering the idea of hiring a younger professor and found an anthropologist more close in age to the pupils who would be under his care, Professor Mulholland. The professor joined the Harvard Anthropology Department in 1965 when he was 28 years old. His appearance was in stark contrast to his tweed-wearing colleagues. According to research by author Becky Cooper, Scott Mulholland wore leather jackets and drove to class on a motorcycle. In a word, he was cool. If anyone could have had a secret affair with Jane, it would be him. But these were just rumors, a way for students to grasp at any explanation for the violent shock of their classmates' death. Some students still felt that Jane could have been killed by a random person. In the 1960s, Cambridge wasn't the safest place to live. Soon, however, Professor Scott Mulholland would be cast in a much more sinister light and the horrific nature of Jane Britton's death would become even more mysterious. The meager bits of information that Detective Davenport offered the press were unsatisfying, and reporters were hungry for more. The energy at Cambridge Police Station was strained. Everyone was exhausted. But the Cambridge Police were still determined to cooperate with the press as much as possible, The officers put together another informal press conference to update reporters on what little information they had gleaned from a day of investigating. This time, another detective led the conversation. Detective Sergeant John Galligan, a veteran member of the criminal investigations team. Expectations were low. From the outside, it was clear that the police didn't have much to go on and hadn't made much progress in the single day since the investigation began. All the same, exhausted reporters and officers shuffled into the harshly lit conference room to go over the facts. Evening. I'm here to assure you we have gone above and beyond on this investigation. Many of you have been here all day, so you've seen how hard our officers have worked. Today alone, we've questioned nearly two dozen people in connection to this case, and we will bring Jane's killer to justice. What kind of person could have done this? I assure you we are dealing with a sick man. The details we've obtained at the scene of the crime are chilling to say the least. Could you tell us more about that? Well, we've examined a strange red powder that was found at the scene. It had been sprinkled around the body. It's been determined to be iron oxide, more commonly known as red ochre. What is the significance of this powder? We're in conversation with some people who worked with the victim in the anthropology department and on archaeological digs. 
Apparently, this powder is common in certain ancient burial rites. Wait, hold on. You think her death was some kind of sacrifice? We're considering the option that this was done by someone familiar with the significance of this powder and its spiritual purpose. I told you, we're dealing with a sick man. By this point in the case, not much had been told to the press about the nature of the crime scene. Privately, the police weren't even sure that the red ochre was important at all. But from the moment that John Galligan revealed this detail, the press went into a frenzy. By January 10th, newspapers across the East Coast declared that Jane Britton was slain in an ancient burial rite. The mystery of the red ochre seized the fascination of reporters and readers alike. For some, this new clue offered a sigh of relief. If the red ochre suggested some kind of ritual killing, that could mean that Jane Britton wasn't murdered by a random stranger. The nature of her death was too specific. According to author Becky Cooper, this little detail was a welcome consolation for students worrying that they could be the next victim of a random killer. But at the Harvard Anthropology Department, things were not so hopeful. While red ochre might have been a mysterious substance to outsiders, archaeologists were very familiar with the material. That brick-red pigment was used across many ancient civilizations, and archaeologists regularly studied it, even experimenting with it themselves. For Jane Britton's classmates, the red ochre clue suggested one thing. The killer could be one of them. It seemed like the only thing that anyone in Cambridge could think about was the mystery of the red ochre. The police were skeptical. Usually murder was just murder, not the product of a ritual sacrifice. But even the police understood what the anthropology students knew. This material was more likely to be in the possession of someone studying archaeology. Hopefully someone from the Harvard Anthropology Department could shed some light on this theory. Away from the hungry eyes of the press, the police quietly contacted the chairman of the department, Stephen Williams, and asked if he could come down to the station for questioning. Stephen Williams stood out in the Cambridge police station. Well-dressed and possessing a slight air of superiority, Williams was a perfect example of the old guard of anthropologists. But at the police station, his accolades hardly meant much. A detective, who for the sake of anonymity we'll call Hector Millay, didn't waste time with any pleasantries. He quickly ushered the chairman into an interrogation room. The following scene is based on a transcript from the Cambridge Police Department, which appears in the book We Keep the Dead Close. <sighs> All right, Mr. Williams. I'd like you to take a look at these photographs here. This is picture number one. Jane Britton is covered in a sheet, a blanket, an Afghan type of a bedspread, and a fur coat. This image also shows the red powder, the, what do you call it, red ochre? See it? Yes, I, I see. Here's picture number two. Some of the material has been taken off of her. You can see the bloodstained sheet and the other paraphernalia has been placed to the side. But this third image is what I really want to show you. Oh, that is quite odd. Detective Millay was holding an image showing a close-up of Jane Britton's bed, where a headboard could be. Resting on a blood-soaked pillow was another strange item, a chunk of a gravestone etched with a winged skull. 
Unlike the clue about the red ochre, the police had been able to keep this one detail secret from the press, and the police were hoping that Stephen Williams could provide some expert insight into the significance of these two items, the powder and the headstone. So, what have you observed from these images, Professor? In terms of anthropology or archaeology, is there some meaning here? Well, it seems to me she's been carefully laid out in some kind of a ceremony. This certainly didn't just happen. It almost looks like someone had in mind some kind of... of... ritual. Professor Williams explained that red ochre was, in fact, used as a part of ancient burial rites, though he admitted that it wasn't always clear why red ochre was used or what its significance was. But even so, Williams felt confident that the killer must have been someone who was familiar with archaeology and knew about ancient burial rites. According to We Keep the Dead Close, Detective Malay sensed the importance of this statement and pushed the man further. Now, could this red ochre be obtained in classrooms at Harvard? Well, I mean, Professor Mulholland has some in his office. Students are in and out of his office all the time. It was a hunch. There was nothing tangible to suggest that Professor Mulholland killed Jane Britton, and no clear reason for why he would want to commit such a horrific crime. But the police were grasping at straws, and this was the closest thing they could find to a potential suspect. So, over the course of the night, the Cambridge police planned a confrontation with the young professor. The hunt was on. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of The Murder of Jane Britton. For more information on this case amongst the many sources we used, we found We Keep the Dead Close, A Murder at Harvard and a Half Century of Silence by Becky Cooper, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solve Murders, True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Georgia Hampton, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Joe Hernandez, Kai Jordan, Eddie Lee, and Jen Wong. Solved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Listeners, don't forget to check out the new ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.